What's up, everybody? My name is Fernanda Sesto. I was born and raised in Uruguay, but I'm currently a senior at the University of Rochester in New York, and I'm very passionate about entrepreneurship, technology, and building things. I've been involved with the venture capital space since my freshman year of college, and I decided to create this podcast because I want to bring visibility to Latin America as an emerging market and help investors and just people who are interested in investing in the region to understand more about the ecosystem there. I will be interviewing investors and entrepreneurs, talking about their career, their experiences, trends, and everything related to ventures. In this episode, I talked with Robert Terenzi from Wilson Sonsini, which is a law firm in Silicon Valley that specializes in business, securities, and intellectual property law. Robert is an associate attorney for the Latin American group at Wilson Sonsini, and he previously founded a coffee company in Nicaragua as well. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Where are we, Robert, here? Um, thank you so much, Robert, for joining this podcast. How are you today? Doing really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So if you can uh, give us a quick intro about yourself, that would be great. Yeah, definitely. So um, my name is Rob Terenzi. I'm a venture capital and startup attorney supporting companies kind of throughout their life cycle. Um, I'm in the Latin America practice group at Wilson Sonsini. Uh, Wilson Sonsini is the kind of like leading technology firm in Silicon Valley. They've been there for 60 years and um, we represent companies, uh, you know, small as, you know, one guy with an idea through Apple and Google. Um, and prior to joining Wilson Sonsini, I, um, I was the CEO and co-founder of Vega Coffee, which is a company kind of st- that still totally exists and is actively working to disrupt the coffee supply chain. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my background. That's great. That sounds pretty interesting. Um, so yeah, about that, about your coffee company, you also uh, mentioned to me, um, when we connected on LinkedIn that you lived in Nicaragua for seven years, um, what motivated you to move there and to start your business there? Yeah, really kind of, uh, kind of crazy and a pretty random part of Latin America to kind of set up shop, but, um, uh, I love Nicaragua. Um, but essentially like I went to Nicaragua, um, in between undergrad and law school. And I was supposed to go for a six week internship um, and ended up spending the next two and a half years down there. Um, within a few months, I got to visit a coffee farm and learned just how completely broken the coffee supply chain is. Um, and so what we set about doing with Vega is um, transforming the coffee supply chain so that farmers particularly women smallholding farmers in Nicaragua and in Colombia um, would be able to kind of own the entire value chain and earn a lot more money through that process. Um, And I um, did that for about eight years um, and uh, left uh, at the beginning of this year um, and joined the the Latin American practice group here at Wilson Sunsi and kind of um, I have a ton of passion for coffee. I think Vega is a really incredible company that's doing really cool things. Um, but I think that what it's like very much related to kind of what we're talking about is, um, yeah, I mean, started a company in Nicaragua with the Delaware holding company, expanded to Colombia with another operating company um, and raised, you know, decent amount of capital uh, in kind of every way you can think of. So Kickstarter, convertible notes, 
price equity rounds, revenue sharing agreements, grants, like we did, we did basically everything. So um, I think that helps me also as an attorney working with entrepreneurs um, in Latin America on like kind of how to do it, what, what the right kind of tool is. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so it's been, it's been a, a cool um, cycle because uh, it's, you know, I, I was actually at Wilson Sunsing before I started Vega. I left um, and then came back. And the the second time around now at, at Wilson's, just it, it's a it's a really cool experience to be coming from the entrepreneur kind of background a little bit more. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, um, if you have that experience, like as an attorney working with founders, it really helps you um, to understand more, empathize more with with entrepreneurs. That's great. And yeah. so when you you just said that um, you. Um, disrupt the supply chain of coffee. I'm just curious, like, what do you mean by that? Did you guys develop anything specific or how was that? Yeah, so when we look at the coffee supply chain, you know, you, you look around the world and coffee is one of the most traded commodities in the world. And yet out of the 25 million or so coffee farmers worldwide, I think the latest statistics said around 20 million were living at or below the poverty line. And that's because that the coffee, like so many other commodities or other kind of, you know, I don't even like calling coffee necessarily a commodity because it, it's become such a specialized good now. But, you know, similar with cacao, um, it's, it's been so many of the, the things that we're seeing today in disrupted supply chains have at the root of them generations of exploitative business practices. And, um, and so what we did at Vega Coffee was um, we essentially looked at the coffee supply chain and realized that I think that, you know, our thesis is that the reason there are so many coffee farmers in poverty is that their relationship with, um, with the coffee bean, a product that they spend years to get, you know, a little bit out of ends as soon as they pick the bean, because then that's when they sell it to their first middlemen and then it starts going up a chain. And, you know, there can be as many as 20, 25 middlemen between you and, and, and the farmer. And so what we did is we changed that model and we have farmers involved in every step of the process through um, picking, cupping, roasting, packaging, shipping coffee so that um, they're participating in all of the value add processes that typically happen in the US or in Europe and where most of the profit is generated. Um, and so that was kind of our innovation. We are, we are working in cacao now um, and uh, it's, been, it's, it's been just an amazing kind of ride basically. Wow, that's very interesting. I'm yeah. a huge coffee lover. Um, really? I really like coffee. Yeah, so that was. I'm. I was just curious about that. I know it's not strictly related to the podcast, yeah. but I think it was very interesting, especially yeah, given your background. Um, so, so just to sum up this, um, what were some of the main challenges that you experienced when you had that um, role as an entrepreneur in Latin America? Yeah. Um, you know, being an entrepreneur is so hard, and I think it's even harder when you are in an, an economy that isn't used to dealing with startups, um, like Nicaragua. Um, I felt like the infrastructure when we moved to Colombia was like much more developed, and um, and it was easier to kind of do some of the things that took us a long time at the beginning in, in Nicaragua. Um, I would say kind of the, the biggest things that we ran into, kind of structurally speaking, and obstacle wise one the bureaucracy like there's so much bureaucracy like getting a license takes so much work or bribery but you know we, we try to do everything the right way and so we were 
And I remember it, it just really tests your metal. I think, it, it, you know, there was one time when we were trying to get an export license and we'd gone to the exporting agency five, 10, 15 times, and they kept finding errors in our forms, you know, changing it this way, changing it that way. And so finally we just said, we're not leaving today until we get this license. And so they, they were like, what, you can't do that. And so then they start shutting down the lights, leaving the office. And we're like, we're not leaving. And so then they finally like had us talk to the boss and we got the license at the end of the day. But like the, the bureaucratic hurdles that you go through, I think setting up a business or trying to do something that's a little bit new and you're not like a, a, a known entity can be really challenging. Um, and then what we dealt with a little bit later in uh, Vega's life was the political instability in Nicaragua. Um, in like 2018, the country kind of burst into flames for lack of a better word. And, and, uh, and that made expansion to Colombia so much more important because we were able to build a little bit of redundancy in our supply chain. We, um, you know, never missed a shipment, kind of things like that. So um, those, were, those were some of the big things. I also think that in general, in the early 2010s, um, Latin America was overlooked for kind of impact folks. So I gave it a lot, a lot more money went to uh, Africa or Southeast Asia. Um, but I think that along with kind of the growth and VC funding, there's been a renewed interest in general in Latin America. So I think that's changed over the last few years. Yeah, definitely. That's very interesting that you mentioned that. Um, definitely. I mean, like during this last two years, I would say that the interest in Latin America has grown a lot from, a, you know, yeah. not just as an impact you know, region. Actually, I think that's the main shift that investors from the U.S. are not just looking at that um, from an impact, impact perspective, but also as a, you know, tech and um, like a tech hub region. Yeah, totally. Yep. And okay, great. That summarizes your entrepreneurship side. So now speaking yeah. about your legal um, experience, which I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this are going to be interested in. Um, so you're an attorney for the Latin American group in Wilson, Cincinnati, in Silicon Valley. So why are some of the trends that you have noticed with the Latin American founders that you have worked with? Yeah, I think a couple things come to mind. Um, one is, I think that geographically things are getting a little bit more diversified. You know, we have clients in Ecuador and Panama and Argentina and, you know, obviously in Colombia and in Mexico, but, um, I just think that there's a bigger appetite for um, or there's a bigger awareness for kind of the diversity of Latin America and how many kind of solutions entrepreneurs can come up with. I also think our um, like the entrepreneurs in general are super educated and super aware of kind of market trends and VC terms and you know there's WhatsApp groups where they are discussing term sheets. Um, so um, there's and I think that's like just the, the great part of kind of being being part of like the, the, the entrepreneur, the VC community is the democratization of information is that I think, you know, on Twitter and other in LinkedIn, people are just really willing to share kind of what they're seeing and what's important. And so I think that that kind of trickles all the way through um, the community. And then um, Lavka, you know, I think put out a report um, that. 2021, like 39% or so of, of all VC funding went to fintech. And that's definitely, um, you know, we, we see that all the time uh, as well. Um, I think that one of those things that is, you know, maybe not as well known if you're not like an active VC investor in Latin America is how powerful the regulatory agencies are, particularly in fintech and kind of banking um, being, can be really regulated in, you know, Mexico, uh, can be punitive. Like, the, you know, in the U.S., it would be pretty rare to get, like, 
shut down as a startup if you have traction and are doing things, you know, relatively, you know, above board. But you you can see that pretty often in, in, in Mexico. And so I think that, you know, given that there's so much of the population in Latin America that's unbanked, fintech is such an important sector, um, and the regulatory agencies are uh, can get in the way, of, I think, of some some good innovation. But they're obviously there to protect people too. It's just um, it's a I think that that's a unique part of the Latin American ecosystem is, is dealing with the regulatory agencies. Yeah, that's actually very interesting that you mentioned. Um, I actually did a, a investment thesis recently about LATAM and I saw, yeah, everyone is so focusing on FinTech. It's like a huge market over there. And I, I mean, I don't know much about the, the, the regulatory or the legal aspect of like how um, governments are regulating that. Do you actually know? about that a little bit or not i mean it's yeah, like I mean, I mean, also yeah. it varies per country i assume exactly. um yeah. from uruguay so like i'm i'm sure that uruguayan law is like very different in terms of um fintech and from like i don't know colombia or mexico totally. so it's, yeah i mean yeah, yeah it's so same. contingent on the local laws mm -hmm. um and like i said mexico has a uh, um you know the, the um like certain banking and valores like um, agencies that that can really wield a tremendous amount of power, whereas the regulatory landscape in Uruguay, for example, we were just talking to a Uruguayan law firm, um, are not kind of as developed yet. And so people are kind of waiting to see if, you know, if they should invest in fintech there or if not, and kind of what, and so yeah, all this stuff is developing kind of in real time as, as, the, as the companies get more sophisticated, as the solutions get more interesting, as things become a little bit more uh, codependent, um, it all, it's, all, it's all really kind of complicated and, uh, and interesting too and developing yeah and i was just thinking i am i was reading that the fact that that you know most of the people were unbanked as you said um and also the fact of like that they don't have these regulations in place um does that do you think that maybe helped to trigger that the fintech boom in in latin america or because i feel like if i'm an entrepreneur and I want to establish something, then don't like the fact that there aren't many regulatory um, policies there in that specific sector, then that might help. But I'm honest, I'm not really sure like how that works because if there's too much, too many policies or too much regulation, then it might also be harder to explore um, verticals there. So I, I don't know like, necessarily how that works. Like, why are you? Yeah. yeah, I think that it's been a couple things. I mean, it, like, like, you know, with so much of the population on bank, like take Colombia, for example, there's something like 1.3 mobile numbers per person. And so, you know, the, 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 the internet penetration has, has gotten so big now that, you know, pretty much everybody's online, but in rural communities in coffee growing communities and cacao growing, you know, communities, they're, they're nowhere near a bank. And so the fact that you can kind of solve some of the, the, the electronic payments issues and, and kind of pricing and, uh, just information, access to information via a mobile phone, um, just creates this really obvious opportunity for a fintech solution that that you know either um, is a way to save money or transmit payments or whatever it is, and not have to travel, you know, 18 hours to a bank. And so um, I think that there's just a lot of natural demographic reasons why fintech is so relevant to Latam. Um, and I just think that it's one of these things where like the technology is going to outpace the, the laws, you know, just kind of as it always does. And, and there's, it, it, there's just going to end up having to be some 
some sort of equilibrium or balance because there, there is such a need for these solutions um, that, uh, that, yeah, I mean, the regulatory landscape just has to get clearer, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. The last thing that you said that, you know, law goes kind of like slower than the technology, so yeah. it has to catch up to that it works, but it also presents opportunities. Um, so a lot of the LATAM-based founders have asked me and I've heard um, in the past that the process of raising capital, it's like very uh, confusing to them. So what does that look that, what are some of the main things that founders need to know before raising capital here? Yeah, um, so my, my work is essentially broken down, I would say into kind of three main buckets. One is structural. So how do you set up your company? Where do you incorporate? Um, should you be a Delaware LLC or a Delaware C Corp or have a Cayman holding company or just a local you know, entity? Um, and so helping navigators, helping entrepreneurs navigate that kind of initial decision process is really important because setting a, up a company incorrectly can have really big tax consequences later. It can be very a deterrent for VCs if you're raising internationally. Um, and then uh, the second part of my work is in the financing. So kind of getting through the term sheet and understanding what's market, what's not, um, and, um, and kind of like negotiating the kind of different control mechanisms that come about through raising venture capital. Um, and then third is, is kind of day-to-day -day governance. And so that's kind of like who's, who's on your board. How do you structure that? How do you remove an employee if you have to? Um, and so, you know, and all of these things are very contingent on local council too. So I, there's no like perfect one size fits all solution for entrepreneurs. I, I just think that like what they should really think about before raising capital is kind of what is, you know, what's the growth strategy, what's the sales strategy, and what's the exit strategy? You know, like, do, do you anticipate raising money internationally or only from local investors? Do you anticipate doing sales ever in the U.S.? Or is it going to be only something that stays in Colombia or in Mexico? Um, and so kind of really thinking down the road a few steps is, is really important in the early stages of a company to get it set up right and to raise money the right way. Um, the, I would say that the, the other kind of thing that I would be aware of is that it can take a long time. I mean, especially in, in the market like now, um, we're just seeing kind of investors slow walks and deals and kind of um, just be a little bit more tentative. And, you know, I, I think that there's this myth about Silicon Valley that you can raise millions of dollars, you know, based on a napkin, you know, something that you sketch out on a napkin, which, you know, I'm sure is true for, for certain founders, but for most people that are doing this kind of work, it's going to take a long time to develop relationships to kind of end up to get a term sheet and then to close the deal. Um, all that stuff takes a long time, um, especially for an international company because investors can feel if they're, you know, whether or not they're experienced in, in investing in Latin America, they can feel that there's an extra level of diligence they need to do to make sure that their investment's being protected, given that they're investing in a, in a different in operation that's in another country. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that can mitigate that is coming out of a really reputable accelerator, like, like SV links, Y Combinator, obviously, you know, 500 startups, like any of these things can, can really mitigate investor concern because it's almost like they've already done the due diligence or the vetting of these companies. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that those are kind of some of the things that, that aren't immediately obvious when you say, okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go out and raise a million bucks and is that that can take a long time. And, um, and you need to be set up correctly in order to facilitate the investment as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great advice. Um, 
definitely if you have the support of you know the big accelerators here that yeah. it, like it signals to the investors that you know your company has um a promising future or something like that um so that's great and then from the investor side i'm sure like you like as, a, as an attorney you have to deal with both sides right um so what are some of the things that the u.s based specifically investors need to know about the region about latin america yeah i think you know kind of the flip side of that is that sometimes kooky structures can work and i mean like you know the u.s based investors are you know used to investing in delaware c corps and so that's going to be what they're most comfortable with but you know if there's going to be big tax consequences or big problems with changing the structure of a company you know i would just encourage all u.s investors to work with a local accountant or lawyer to make sure that they're being protected and that they're doing things correctly but to facilitate, if it's if it's a dream or a, a, an idea or a vision that they really believe in, you, know, you can make things work. It just might be a little clunky or might be a little bit different from what they're used to. Um, so I think that using local accountants and lawyers is very important because there's no way that the U.S. side of you know, you know, we don't know the intricacies of Nicaraguan law, um, and so. Uh, that is one thing. The second one is, is kind of what we touched on. Regulatory agencies have a ton of power. And so just being kind of really aware that, that whatever you're doing has been signed off on by, you know, the, the relevant regulatory agencies. Um, and I think the last thing is just not underestimating the importance of currency exchange. I mean, like, you know, in, I was talking to an Argentinian entrepreneur and he was saying that, um, you know, the official exchange rate is something like 130 Argentine pesos per US dollar. But in order to actually get US dollars, you have to go through all sorts of contortions to kind of get to it. It can end up being almost three, three X, like maybe 300 to one or yeah. Um, and so um, being aware of how you invest and through which entities and kind of the currency you're doing it in, all that stuff needs to be kind of figured out at the early stages because it can really complicate a deal if it, if it gets brought up at the last minute, for example. Um, um, so yeah, that's kind of what I would, I would advise. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. I mean, um, I think definitely though, um, if this, you know, especially with the currency exchange, um, the regulatory agency is still working progress, but I feel like there's more, since there has been, there have been a lot of investments recently and there have been a lot of like companies that have been successful um, from LATAM. I feel like a lot of investors might feel less skeptical and more really? adventurous in going and explore. Definitely, I, I mean, I can see from an investor's perspective how difficult it can be to just go and try to understand another country's law, currency and agencies while it's so much easier here in the U.S. I, I guess like a lot of, um, a lot of, companies who are uh, which are based in latin america come here to open the the like incorporate themselves here yeah. in US, right that's that yeah. would be the best strategy for for latin contaminant that's what i heard but like why do you why do you think of that yeah i mean it's like if you are an entrepreneur and you expect to raise capital from you know u.s investors then then yeah i mean you know, setting up and and holding company here is uh, should be a priority. But if you think your investors will mostly be international or from various countries, then you might 
be looking at a Cayman holding company. Um, or if all of your investors are going to be from your region or from your country, then there's no reason to incorporate up here, you know? And so it, it's kind of, it depends upon like where you want to have your operations, where you want to be selling into which markets and where you think your capital is going to come from. Um, I mean, those are, those are kind of like the chief determinants about um, how to set up the country, yeah. the company. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Um, okay. And so wrapping up, I have two questions that I'm going to ask every single participant of the podcast. And those are, do you have any hot takes about venture in LATAM and any advice for young folks like me who are trying to learn more about the space? Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's really a hot take, but like, I would say that I think that a lot of the investing and a lot of the, um, startup ecosystem in LATAM is at its heart impact work. And so like, there's a lot of double bottom line kind of motivation behind a lot of the startups. And by that, I mean, a lot of the startups that we're seeing are trying to tackle some really fundamental problems that people are having in their day-to-day -day lives. You know, whether it's um, last mile logistics or FinTech or health tech, um, or, you know, ed, ed tech, like all of these um, kind of things make lives better for underserved populations. And, um, and so, I don't know, I, I really love working in the space because there is a purpose and there's a reason and that's a, it's not, it's usually like a, really trying to address a problem rather than a solution in search of a problem or, you know, like the proverbial better mousetrap, like it's not, they're not all like kind of ad companies or just trying to do like a slight iteration on X, Y, and Z. Like they're really solving fundamental things that have gone unsolved for far too long in Latin America. And so, um, so I think that, that getting involved in the space can be really motivating and um, really uplifting basically. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely agree with that. I think a lot of, that's what I personally really like about Latin American entrepreneurship is that I really need um, base. So um, entrepreneurs in LATAM are kind of driven by the need of solving these issues because it's not just for the sake of making money. Um, it's just there's yeah. a purpose behind it, which I personally find very inspiring, as you said. And do you have any advice for young people like us who are, you know, I know you're not necessarily an investor in ours, uh, founder, but you know, you, you're a founder, I guess. Yeah. Um, but you know, from your as a career advice or anything, you know, from your perspective. Yeah. I really liked um, Marcial's advice on your first episode about kind of creating a personal brand. I think that that's really important um, even for kind of advanced professionals. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, with COVID hopefully kind of largely behind us, or at least people trying to get back into like normal stuff. I think that, that, that like it's somewhat important to acknowledge the importance of, uh, in, in-person events and attending conferences and meeting people and kind of like, you know, as, as like, it's, you know, networking is such a kind of cringe inducing word, but like, like, it's really important. I mean, I, there's a partner in my law firm who we went to a conference together and he was like, look, like conferences, like the first time you go, you're, you're sitting in a corner most of the time. Like you don't know anybody. Second time you go, you start seeing the same people in the ecosystem. And the third time you're a speaker on a panel. And so like, all of my best opportunities, most of the fundraising I did as an entrepreneur came from meeting people in person and, you know, attending accelerators, uh, you know, incubators, 
investment conferences, like, you know, coffee conferences. Like, um, I think that showing up and meeting people is like, you just can't like under or oversell that. Like, um, I don't think that the best job for you, Fernanda, is going to show up on LinkedIn. Like it's going to probably come from people who know you best and saying like, oh, I heard about this awesome company doing X, Y, and Z. Like you would be really a cool fit there. Let me make an introduction to one of the general partners there or whatever it is, you know? And so I, I, I think that, um, I think that just kind of expanding your network, staying in touch with people who are important to you, um, even if it's just checking in and saying, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'm like, you have 10 minutes just to catch up and I can share what I've been up to this semester or whatever, you know, like uh, that stuff can just go a really, really long way when it's time for them to make a hire or to think about hiring or whatever it is. So, yeah, I think that that's um, important. And then the, the last thing I would just say is that like, uh, and this, this is kind of why I went to Nicaragua initially was that I was, I had a, an internship at um, the Harvard School of Government, the Kennedy School of Government with, um, and I was a research assistant and I was passionate about Latin America and, um, and you know, my boss was like, you know, you need to spend some time on the ground. Like you need, like you've been for semester or summer, but like you need to go live there for a little while. And so, um, spending time on the ground, you know, I don't think it has to be seven years like I did, like that was a little excessive, but like in general, like really understanding the culture and the economy and the opportunity, uh, I think is just super important. Yeah, I think that that would be great. I um, I haven't got into trouble a lot around Latin America. I've been to Argentina, Brazil, but I think I, I want to keep, you know, exploring. Uh, definitely, I, I encourage everyone who's interested in the space to, they have the opportunity to go and, and like live there. That would be great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you all for your time and for the advice. Um, and I had a great time talking to you. So thank you. Thank you, Fernanda. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think that... Uh... You're doing really cool work. And I, I've read your thesis, and I thought it was awesome, the investment thesis. Uh, so, um, yeah, oh, thank, thank you for this podcast. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Talking to Robert was very interesting, especially because I don't have much exposure to the legal aspects of venture capital. And I definitely appreciated a lot having this conversation with him. I hope you also found this episode insightful and hopefully you come back for more.